Many church leaders, even some who call themselves evangelicals, are far more concerned about the climate and the environment than they are about living human beings. And this is because of an idolatry that is taking hold and gaining ground by the moment. And there are even others who may not be um, card-carrying eco-warriors, but we are naive and we are complacent as to how this is taking hold in the church. And we don't perceive where this is coming from spiritually and where it's taking us to spiritually. And we see some superficial similarities between climate concern and what we read in scripture and we think well that's good enough for me it's a biblical thing to care about let's uh, adopt it wholesale Uh, but it's not like that Hello and welcome to this week's episode of About Abortion. As you no doubt have heard, the sycamore tree at Hadrian's Wall uh, was felled overnight overnight recently uh, by uh, no one quite knows whom, but someone apparently has been arrested. And I number myself amongst those who are genuinely sad uh, about this. I'm not just saying that to gain some sort of uh, common ground with my listeners. Genuinely, I'm sad. I've been to that spot a couple of times with my family. It's a beautiful scene, or it was. It was a beautiful scene, and um, and now much less so. But there's something about this whole affair that makes me much sadder than the demise of this tree, and that's what I want to talk with you about today. Now, it's important when we have these knee-jerk reactions and these sentimental responses, it's important that we, especially as God's people, Christians, Uh, It's important that we bring those uh, reactions and seek to submit them to the Word of God. We want to be looking at everything in the light of Scripture. And just because something makes us sad, it doesn't mean that it necessarily is sad or that it's right that we are sad. We mustn't be emotionally driven. And so what I want to do first off is I want to explore some Scriptures with you um, and move towards something of a theology of trees Um, if that's all right with you. We're going to see what the Bible has to say about plants, where they belong in God's design, in his order. And then out of that, think about how we should be responding as Christians um, to what's just happened. So let's begin at the beginning, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Now we see that um, the Lord created all things. In the beginning there was nothing, and then God created uh, out of nothing by the power of his word. And we read here, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So here what we see is, uh, as with all of creation, uh, to begin with, God says it is good. That's his uh, judgment on what he's made. So we can straight away say trees are good, uh, part of God's good creation. Uh, But already we're seeing hints here of uh, the way in which trees are good. Uh, One of their primary functions is to provide food for uh, animals and for humans. So right off we can see that plants, yes, are important, but in a sort of derivative way or in a sort of incidental way, you could say, um, the, the good that they provide is chiefly for other living things. Of course, 
plants are living, but according to scripture, they're not living in the same way that animals are, and certainly not in the same way that humans are. And we see this um, really uh, reiterated again and again. Um, later in the chapter, God says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And then in chapter two, we read that the garden was full of trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So here's another uh, function, another way in which trees and plants uh, and much of creation um, are good. Well, they're pleasing to the eye. So it's right and natural that we should um, rejoice in the beauty of a a sycamore tree and be sad when that beauty is taken away. So we can see uh, trees, plants, vegetation, they're good for food and they're good for um, the, the, the beauty that they provide. Um, if you flick ahead now to Psalm 104, as it happens, uh, before I decided to speak on this this morning, uh, this was my reading uh, today, Psalm 104. And, and we see here again, uh, the Lord um, very actively involved in uh, the growth of plants. Um, it's not as though God just set up creation and then uh, had no further involvement. Uh, yes, he did create things able to reproduce according to their kinds, uh, human beings included. But we also read when it comes to human beings, Psalm 139, fantastic exa- example, uh, how God is intimately involved, uh, as it were, every time a new human being is created. He, he, he's hands-on involved in that creation. And we see something uh, comparable here, that here um, in time, uh, not just at the beginning of time, but in time, Uh, from verse 14 of Psalm 104. uh, He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the pine trees and so on. And so again, we we see uh, plants being provided as food for the animals and for humans and also as a place for for birds for example to live so so vegetation plants there they are they're, they're there primarily to serve other living um things uh so there's a sort of functionality to the to the way in which plants are good but the, the passage i want to focus on perhaps most today is in jonah jonah chapter four and i and i hope that you will see how this relates to recent events for us. So those who know the story of Jonah, um, incredible story, uh, well worth a read if you've never read it before. It's just four chapters. You can read it in one sitting. And uh, in a nutshell, the story is Jonah is sent, well, he's commanded to go to Nineveh, but first off, he refuses. He doesn't want to go there. Why does he not want to go there? Because the people of Nineveh were notoriously wicked. They were so evil I mean, they're, they're, they're similar to what we're like today in the way that they treated human beings. The, the methods they used for torturing and skinning their enemies and, and pinning uh, their enemies up in public places, as an example, uh, to others. It was a society that almost seemed to relish torturing human beings. And, and when you kind of compare that their torture and execution methods with what we're doing to babies in the womb today, especially late-term abortion, where we'll use potassium chloride, where we'll uh, use saline poisoning. Um, the, the torturous methods are really comparable. And it's because Nineveh was so wicked, Jonah didn't want to go there in the first place. And of course, there's the famous account of how he runs off, ends up in a storm, 
and uh, he ends up sinking into the sea, but he's rescued by a fish. Uh, he prays to the Lord for deliverance. He's spat out onto dry land, and the word comes to him a second time to go to Nineveh. This time he goes, and he marches through the city, uh, declaring the word of the Lord, and from king to beggar, the whole nation or the city of Nineveh repents, and, and they... Um, and the king actually issued an edict saying that everyone was to give up their evil ways and their violence. And there was just that hope that God might have compassion and relent. And indeed he did. And that's where we join the story in chapter four. Um, Jonah is really um, in a huff because they've been led off, because they've been shown mercy. So Jonah went off uh, and sat down at a place east of the city. This is chapter four, verse five. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to live. Sorry, to, for, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Now, again, you can see there that the, the plant um, has a, a use. It's good in a certain way. Again, it's primarily good in the way that it serves a purpose for, in this case, Jonah. It gave him shade. That was a good thing. But there's a bigger point being made here. Jonah has it entirely wrong. Why? He cares more about a plant than he does about human beings. Now, if we were to go back to Genesis, we'd see that whilst plants were good and they had their function, when God made mankind, when he made men and women in his own image, um, that was a special act that distinguished them from all of creation. No longer did he say it was good. He said it was very good. And throughout scripture, we see a very high premium being placed on human life. In Genesis chapter 9, we read that it's because we're made in God's image that the shedding of innocent blood is forbidden. And God will demand an accounting for every human life that's taken. It doesn't say that about trees anywhere. It doesn't say an account's going to be demanded for every tree felled. But every human life taken, absolutely. Absolutely. And indeed, elsewhere in the Old Testament, it talks about how there is there is no um, remission for um, the curse on the land. There's no way of cancelling out that except by the shedding of of the guilty's blood capital punishment in that legal code now of course we could in another discussion talk about how that relates to what jesus did on the cross and how um that price has been paid but the point is that's how seriously the lord takes the shedding of innocent blood and that's why it attracts capital punishment in the old testament law so jonah's got it all wrong here he cares more about a plant than he does about human beings. And these are human beings whose eternal souls are at stake. And if he had had his way and withheld the gospel, as it were, from them, the message of repentance, uh, their souls would have at stake. But also all the violence being done and the innocent blood being shed, that also, in a sense, would have rested on Jonah's head 
had he not delivered God's message of judgment and the offer of repentance. Uh, I won't turn there now, but we could also look at when Jesus curses the fig tree in the New Testament. There's no indication that the tree itself um, had some kind of value whereby that was um, punishing it as if it's a person, but rather it was a prophetic sign um, showing what was going to happen in particular to Jerusalem and uh, the Jewish people at that moment who were rejecting the Messiah, not bearing fruit in time. So I hope we can see here that we can categorize God's creation of living things into at least three, perhaps perhaps only three, plants, animals and, and humans. Of course, we can talk about angels in another setting. But in terms of here on earth, we've got plants, animals, humans. And humans are um, effortlessly um, superior under God's authority in value because we're made in the image of God. Now, what we're seeing, if we compare this biblical account of things with what's happening right now in response to this sycamore tree uh, in Northumberland, is we, we see we've got it entirely the wrong way around. We're a bit like Jonah. We are weeping over uh, the felling of a sycamore tree, and yet we remain uh, callous-hearted and insensitive to what's being done to human beings made in God's image. Uh, you can put it like this, that we are humanizing non-human things more and more, uh, but we're acknowledging the humanity and value of human beings less and less. And there's this gap that is widening. Let me give you some examples. Uh, in, in the newspapers, on social media, uh, celebrity responses to the sycamore tree, I, I notice words such as this. Apparently, someone murdered the tree. People are saying, RIP, rest in peace, this tree. Uh, they're talking about how the tree is irreplaceable. You can't put the tree back up. Uh, someone talked about how it was a star in a film, as if it was one of the actors, as if it had a sort of personality. Um, others talked about how the tree kept them company. Now, at one level, one can understand these sentiments and, and, and the metaphors that may be being employed here. Um, but the reality is there is an outpouring of grief over one tree being felled in a way that we're not seeing over the hundreds of babies that are being killed every single day. The humanity of human beings is being suppressed um, and the, and the uh, non-human uh, objects such as trees are being humanized and that gap is widening. I even saw a, a, a quote from W.H. Auden that said, a culture is no better than its woods and uh, a modern day poet was latching onto that and saying, yes, this is the sort of heart of the nation. How we treat our trees is, is the measure of our nation. Now, how have we got to this point? Because this is, this is symptomatic. This is a problem, but it's not the heart of the problem. It's symptomatic. And if we turn to um, Romans chapter 1, we begin to see more of what's going on here. And we, we could have looked at Matthew chapter 6, by the way, for your notes. You may want to look at that in your own time where, again, God, uh, Jesus talks about how uh, God does clothe the, the flowers of the field. Um, and he talks about the sparrows being provided for. Um, but how much more will your heavenly father feed you, you of little faith? And so the, the, the very clear point being made there is that human beings are far more precious and meaningful to God than, than animals or plants. But if we look at Romans chapter one, we can see what's going on here. We can begin to understand the sort of spiritual backdrop to the insanity, and it is insanity, 
um, that's at play in our society, that there's an outpouring of grief over a tree, but not a tear shed for human babies. Uh, from verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. What this passage reveals to us from God's word is that where it starts, where all of this starts, where it begins, is with the suppression of the knowledge of God and the worship of created things. That's at the heart of the malaise in our nation today. We have suppressed the knowledge of God. We know that God is there. He's made it clear. We have that sensus divinitatis, as it's been called. We have that sense of the divine in our hearts, we have a conscience, we're made in God's image, his glory is clear to see in, in creation, but we suppress the knowledge of God and we worship created things instead. And what pours out of that, if you could put it in two words, is insanity and depravity. Insanity in our thinking, depravity in our behavior. And so we can see there's a futile mind and that's the futile mind that we have all around us that cannot judge rightly between the value of trees and the value of human beings that cannot see biological reality that makes the claim that a boy can be a girl and a girl can be a boy. Um, and there's also the depravity, the, the wicked um, behaviours. And it's, it's no accident that this passage starts by talking about sexual behaviours. This is so key. Um, so often where a nation begins to go wrong uh, is in their sexual activity. Very important. And so it talks about the exchanging of natural relations for unnatural ones, homosexual activities. Um, and then what happens after that, and if you tune in next week, you'll hear about this. There is this um, almost unavoidable connection between sexual sin and violence. It, 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 as night follows day, uh, the shedding of innocent blood follows sexual sin. And sometimes that follows very closely 
as in the sacrifice of babies, uh, whether that's Old Testament Molech worship uh, or modern day worship of the self and, and sexual license and what we call abortion being the sacrifice of babies. It's very closely re related to the sexual revolution. But what we can see here is that it all starts with suppressing God and worshiping created things. Um, it often moves then onto sexual sin and then onto all sorts of other kinds of wickedness, in including murder and violence. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of About Abortion. I hope you're appreciating these podcasts. And if you are, can I ask for your help in getting these vital messages to more people? We're delighted that we can get these to people free of charge. Uh, but that's not free for us to produce. It costs something like three to four hundred pounds a month to get these podcasts produced. And I wonder if you could help us, partner with us financially. Uh, many of us will have uh, an Amazon Prime subscription or some kind of streaming platform to the tune of six, seven, eight pounds a month. I wonder if you consider, as it were, taking out a subscription uh, with us. If you could donate, say, eight pounds a month, if we had about 40 people donating around eight pounds a month, just eight pounds a month, uh, that would help us to continue to do these podcasts uh, free of charge for anyone who uh, wants to listen in. And this is the only podcast uh, specifically about abortion in the UK. It's the greatest injustice, not only of our time, but in all history. Would you help us uh, to bring these life-saving messages to more people? And don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe. Do send this in particular to your church leaders and, uh, and anyone else you think might be interested. Thank you so much for your support and uh, I'll let you get back to the episode now. What is the religion of our day? Well, I think it's becoming increasingly clear uh, that here in the West, one of the great religions of our day, one of the great cults of our day is the cult of the climate. It's earth worship. It's worshipping nature. And uh, the other chief idol you could say is the worship of self. It's uh, the idol of, of me. Uh, I do it my way. It's choice, autonomy. Um, and that sort of thing. And what's quite interesting about this is, in a way, we're going back to basics. Um, our idolatry today is literally worshipping created things, as in creation, uh, just the planet. We're not even making statues of created things or, or putting different bits of animals together in a statue as, as various idols around the world statues have been, including today in Hinduism, for example. Um, and, and likewise, we're not making idols of uh, 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 whether it's made up beings or, or whatever and worshipping them. But in fact, we're worshipping ourselves. We're not just worshipping any particular uh, sin, but sin as a concept, as it were, because we're just saying whatever I choose is right. As long as I'm choosing it, it's right. And, and so we're, we're in a moment where in our culture we're worshipping creation, the earth, trees, the sky, the sun, and we're worshipping ourselves and that's what we're seeing in this moment with the sycamore tree. This tree stands for something and alarm bells should be going off that this has happened and that this is how we're responding to what's happened. People are exalting created things to the level of, first of all, human beings and then God. And at the same time, we're demoting humans made in God's image to be as disposable as uh, a fingernail or uh, no different to having your appendix out. That's how we're treating unborn children, as if they are just things, inconveniences to be gotten rid of. We need to pay attention to moments 
like this. This gap in our thinking, the gap between how we care about a tree and how we care about human beings, it's not just a gap in our thinking, it's a gap in our feeling, it's a gap in our, in our loving, in our esteeming. It's what we esteem, what we value, what we worship. In a culture that's done away with the knowledge of God, we will find that human beings are next on the list for being done away with, and inanimate objects even, or things like trees, get exalted to the highest place. So let's return to this question of, of um, are we sad about this, and is it right to be sad? Now, of course, at one level, it is right to be sad about the destruction of something beautiful. Um, I think it's important when we are sad, when we're angry, when we're offended, to ask, why is that? What's going on in there? Often that's a window into what's going on in our hearts. Um, often it can uncover some idolatry. So there are good reasons to be sad, even angry, that this has happened. Um, it can make us look forward to the new creation when there aren't going to be acts of vandalism and where beautiful things will remain in their place. But I think there are also some other reasons why we might be sad and angry. And they're tied up in the issue of idolatry. Very often when we get sad or angry, especially when we get cross, it's because an idol has been touched. So what's been touched here in our nation, perhaps in your heart, listening in, when this uh, tree was felled overnight, um, it reminded me of some other things that have been felled overnight. And if you've got a Bible to hand, perhaps you can turn to Judges chapter 6. We don't know who uh, felled this tree. I saw one report that it was um, a teenage boy of 16 years and uh, another claim that a man of 60 years old has been arrested. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know who who did this. But assuming it was some teenage boy, what if this young man was a prophet? And I only mean that half jokingly. Uh, Judges chapter 6, uh, Gideon receives a call from the Lord and he's called to make an altar to the Lord. And then it says from verse 25, that same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die, because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Gideon tore down an idol overnight and the people went ballistic. You can see what happened. He touched a nerve, and though what he pulled down was just made of stone, wood, uh, inanimate, useless, and the people couldn't handle it, and they actually wanted to kill him. Now, what we've seen in our nation may not be expressed in quite the same way, but there's a lot of anger, and it seems to me that this has really touched a nerve in our nation's um, heart, you could say. And I want to ask, what if this uh, episode is something of a 
a, a prophetic sign? What is the significance to what's just happened here? Just as Jonah had his uh, vine withered, and the Lord did that, so in our time the Lord has allowed this tree to be felled. And I'm not saying that the person who did this um, necessarily, uh, well, who knows what his motives were. But I'm saying at a bigger level, at a deeper level, what if this is a, a prophetically significant moment? This tree has been felled and this tree stands as a symbol for our climate cult, for our worship of nature itself. The tree has been felled and the question is now what? What are we going to do with that? Are we going to be like the, the, the men who surrounded Gideon uh, demanding his blood? Or are we going to see that what's been felled here cannot help us, cannot give us salvation any more than a block of stone or uh, a piece of silver? Will we turn our hearts to God in repentance? And will we value people, their, their physical lives, their eternal souls? Will we care for them more than we care for things like the air and plants and animals? Or will we, like Jonah, uh, sulk? Will we shed tears over this plant, but continue to be calloused with regard to the unborn child in our day? The, the issue of uh, created things being exalted and human beings made in the image of God being demoted, this is a problem in the church. Something that struck me on Twitter was the response of various bishops uh, to the sycamore tree and uh, expressing horror at what's happened. And these same bishops have never said a word about the genocide of babies in their nation on their watch. And they will be held to account on this by the living God. They're going to have to give an account for this, as we all will. What did we do in the time of the baby genocide? Some of these men and women have seats in the Houses of Parliament and they have an opportunity to speak. To my knowledge, not a single one of them has spoken at all against the genocide in, say, the last five to ten years, recent history. Uh, one example is the Bishop of Norwich, my local bishop. Um, he blocked me on Twitter after I uh, made the point that babies matter more than trees, biblically. Um, he's an interesting case in point of how this climate cult really is a cult. It really is an idolatry that's taking hold within the church, within the established church. His profile picture has um, Gaia, this massive globe, uh, named after a pagan goddess in the background behind his head, this huge globe which um, was hosted in a, a large church building in Norwich. Um, on his profile, he describes his birth date in terms of some sort of carbon dating system. So he identifies himself and he traces his, his um, moment of birth, not, from, not according to the Christian calendar of um, Anno Domini and the year of our Lord, uh, but rather according to some sort of um, carbon calendar. Um, he also is down as saying recently that uh, net zero targets and climate culture ought to permeate every part of our lives. So he's talking about whole life discipleship, not to Christ, but to net zero. This is the Bishop of Norwich and he doesn't stand alone. Many church leaders, even some who call themselves evangelicals, are far more concerned about the climate and the environment than they are about living human beings. And this is because of an idolatry that is taking hold and gaining ground by the moment. And there are even others who may not be um, card-carrying eco-warriors, but we are naive and we are complacent as to how this is taking hold 
in the church. And we don't perceive where this is coming from spiritually and where it's taking us to spiritually. And we see some superficial similarities between climate concern and what we read in scripture. And we think, well, that's good enough for me. It's a biblical thing to care about. Let's uh, adopt it wholesale. Uh, But it's not like that. Satan is using this ideology amongst many others to draw us away from the word of God and uh, to take us away from the gospel and to get us to serve other gods. And the mixing of idolatry and the worship of the living God has never been good enough. There's no way anyone can, can claim that within the established church, within the church at large, there is anything like the amount of concern for the unborn, for the babies being killed daily. Nothing like the same level uh, that there is for things like trees and um, the atmosphere. So there's a moment here for us to pay attention. An idol in our nation has been felled. And the question is, what are we going to do next? Great Britain, we need to snap out of this idolatry of non-human things, of created things. We need to snap out of the idolatry of the climate. And that goes for people in the church as well, and church leaders. We need to snap out of it. We need to see how lethal, how toxic this ideology is. As I was um, looking into people's responses to this, um, to the sycamore uh, tree felling, I, I came across something quite striking. I was already beginning to be concerned that this was... Um, uh, something of, 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 of an idolatry that was at play here. And I came across this headline, a deliberately felled sycamore and an idol. I thought, goodness, this is interesting. I clicked on the link and it was actually um, the sort of top seven or so um, best photos from around the world last Thursday. And uh, it contains a picture of the sycamore tree felled, I think a drone shot from above. But then very interestingly, the same day, one of the top photos um, globally was of a huge clay idol from Hyderabad in India, a huge clay idol of the Hindu god Ganesha, the hideous elephant god um, that's worshipped in Hinduism. And this Hindu god is worshipped for several days in a row. And then apparently this huge, um, what is it, 63 foot tall statue, this idol, is hoisted by crane and dipped into a lake. I don't know all the ins and outs of why this is done, but this is part of this idol worship in India. Um, Now, can this be brushed off as coincidence, or are we prepared to see that there's something here, there's a connection that we're meant to make? Just as in India, still to this day, in Hinduism, um, statues of elephant-headed gods are worshipped and there's all this um, ritual and expense um, and devotion poured out for a statue. That's the idol within Hinduism, one of the many idols within Hinduism. Are we prepared to see that what's going on today in our nation is idolatry, no less than that, different in form, but it's no less an act of idolatry? And are we willing to be as repulsed by the idolatry of the climate as we are or should be by the idolatry of um, statues made to look like um, human elephant hybrids. Um, Again, you're free to dismiss this as coincidence if you like, but just so happened I met someone yesterday 
who was from Hyderabad and got chatting to him in the park. And then this, um, this article pops up this morning, idolatry from Hyderabad in connection with the sycamore tree. I think that the Lord's trying to get my attention on this and perhaps all of us need to pay attention to the idolatry that's gripping our nation. An idol has been felled. Are we willing to turn from our idolatry and come back to the living God and honour what he honours, love what he loves, hate what he hates, which includes the shedding of innocent blood, or are we going to go with the tide of popular culture and get no further than outrage that a beautiful tree has been felled and um, an, an ever-increasing clamour for devotion to the cult of the climate?